When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Naked Astronomy, the space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. I'm Ben McAllister, a physicist from Australia of all places, and this season on the show we're tackling the big questions from our very big universe. You may have heard the first episode of the season, which came out last month, where I spoke to Professor Paul Davies to get a sense of what the big, outstanding questions in our universe are. We had a fantastic chat covering many topics, and one of the things which stuck out to me was the question of time. What exactly is it, and how does it work? It may sound silly, but really think about it. Can you define time? We tend to have a sort of instinctive understanding of it as humans, but it can be a bit of a slippery thing to think about in a well-defined way. Paul Davies had lots of thoughts about time. He isn't convinced that the thing we think of as time really behaves the way we think it does. And I uh, often point to another illusion, and I believe it is an illusion, the flow of time. Uh, I don't think time flows. I don't think it moves at all. I don't think it can make any sense of flowing time. You could just ask, how fast does it flow? Well, one second per second. It tells you nothing. <laughs> People have been thinking about time for, if you'll forgive me, ages. The question of if time is something truly fundamental to the universe, or something that we would call emergent, which is to say not fundamental, is a fairly old one. Is there really an arrow of time flowing in one direction, fundamentally baked into our universe? Or is our perception of time just a consequence of our limited human perspective on reality? These are heady questions which border on the philosophical, and if you know this program at all, you know that that is exactly the kind of thing we like to dig into. Albert Einstein famously proposed his theories of special relativity and general relativity in the early 20th century. These theories, among other things, proposed that space and time are intrinsically linked in something called space-time, and that time is not really that different from space, even though we might think of them as being very separate. A major part of these theories is the idea that time is not a universal constant which flows the same way for everyone, but that the time you experience or measure can be quite different relative to the time someone else does. Sounds kind of out there, right? Well, I decided this month on the show I wanted to dig in on time. I went looking for an expert to talk to, and I found the works of Professor Sean Carroll. I'm Sean Carroll. I'm a theoretical physicist and also now a official philosopher at Johns Hopkins University and the Santa Fe Institute. Sean has written books and spoken extensively about time, both as a scientist and as a communicator, so I thought he was the perfect person to chat with about this surprisingly complicated subject. We started with the basics. Could you please tell me, in your words, what exactly is time? Time is a coordinate on space-time. Sean has a way of giving these simple, cutting-to-the-bone answers to the big questions, which is fantastic, but he was good enough to elaborate for me. We can't give you the once-and-for-all final answer to this because, of course, we don't understand the fundamental nature of reality, the fundamental laws of physics, things like that. So I can't tell you whether time is fundamental or emergent. You know, very, There's various things that we don't know about 
time. But, you know, the simplest way is basically the right way. Ever since, you know, we thought about the universe in any systematic way, we realized we have to locate things in the universe. And locating things in the universe means not only where they are, but when they happen. So even long before, you know, Einstein and relativity come along, you have to think of the totality of everything that has ever happened and ever will happen as being labeled by different moments in time. Now, relativity comes and messes it up because it, it tells you that that time label is not universal. Different people will choose to do it differently, measure it differently, etc. cetera. Uh, but nevertheless, that's the simplest way that we can put it. Sean's given us a nice practical definition of time, but I was keen to get deeper and dig in on the different perspectives on time's nature. Is it actually real and fundamental, or is it just something humans have kind of made up because it feels like time is passing? But people seem to have this, like, we sort of have this subjective human experience of time, right? Like, you can sit here and, like, feel the flow of time and feel time passing. It, it begs this question, like, is time real? Is it something, as you said, like, fundamental, or is it is it just a thing that we perceive? Is it just like, okay, a clock is ticking, that's something physical that's going on, and we have this idea that there's time passing between the ticks. What, what do you think? Is there is there really time, or is it just something we experience? I think that there's really time. I think it's pretty clear that there's really time. See what I mean about those answers? But there is a footnote here, But because, of course, there's a philosophy question, what do you mean by real? But let's put it this way. The notion of time is indisputably useful to us when we talk about the universe in the best way we can. When we say, let's do a podcast and you have to come on at 6 p.m. Tuesday evening, no one panics and says, I have no idea what this means. What is this gobbledygook? <laughs> it's universally useful. That's one way of thinking about things that are real. If everyone agrees on what is meant by what is being referred to there, I'm going to qualify it as real. I mean, that's a, it's a very reasonable perspective, but it is also something of a, of a human one. It, it relies on like a collective consciousness that understands what time is, right? If there were no consciousnesses in the universe, humans or whatever, would you still think that time itself was real? Uh, no, because I would not exist. Got me again, Sean. In all seriousness, though, Sean maintains that even without human brains to perceive time passing, it is intrinsically real as it captures something specific about the universe. That's sort of encouraging if you, like me, have been having doubts about the objective value of human perception. It is useful, but that usefulness is after the more important fact, which is that it captures something real. Uh, the way the philosophers put it is it carves nature at the joints. Uh, there's something about this notion of time that is reflected in whatever the fundamental nature of reality is. You said before that time is a coordinate on space-time. And space-time is something that listeners of this program may have heard bandied about now and again, but uh, it is a bit of an odd concept to a, to a layperson. So how would you explain space-time? Well, this is where it does get interesting vis-a-vis uh, -vis time, because, of course, you could have talked about space-time if you were Isaac Newton, right? Like, he knew about space. He knew it was three-dimensional. He knew about time. It was right there in his equations. And he knew that you needed to pinpoint where you were in space and time. If you want to say, you know, let's meet for coffee, you need to say where and when. And the reason why it wasn't important to do that, even though you could have talked about space-time, you could have glued together space and time and unified them. But it wasn't important because everyone agreed on how they separated into space and time. Of course, they both existed, but they seemed like very different 
kinds of things. Whereas when relativity comes along with Einstein in 1905, special relativity, uh, it, it's realized actually not first by Einstein, but by his old professor, Hermann Minkowski, that the best way to think about relativity is not everyone agrees on how to d- divide space-time into space and time. That's something that will depend on how you move through the universe and so forth. So there are now in relativity two different notions of time. And even though the one-sentence version is a coordinate on space-time, there's a new definition that comes in, which is the thing that is measured by your clock. And if you're Isaac Newton, the thing that is measured by your clock is the same as the coordinate on space-time. We all agree if the two criminals synchronize their watches, go off and do their crimes, and then come back, their watches will still be synchronized. In a world of relativity, that amount that your clock reads, that personal time that you experience is no longer equal to the personal time someone else experiences. So you can still have a coordinate on space-time, but you don't have to have to distinguish between that and the amount of time that your clock will actually say passes. That gets a bit interesting if you're a human being, right? And you have this instinctive understanding of time as this thing that's fundamental to the universe. When we then start talking about the relativistic concept of time, time as a thing that your clock measures, we have to really start thinking about how we're measuring time. There's some physical process going on, whether it's a quartz oscillator in a watch that's ticking along, or whether it's something really fancy like an atomic clock, there's some physical process that's occurring. And uh, that can flow at different times for different people. How um, how does that occur? Well, it, it only flows on differently for different people if they're moving differently through space-time. So you and your watch who are presumably moving in the same way through space-time, don't see any difference. Your heartbeat and your ticks of the watch and whatever should be in synchronization as much as they ever are, no matter what you're doing. So reality is full of clocks, of, of things that do things in a repetitive, repeatable, predictable way compared to each other. Unless these clocks start moving near the speed of light. And that's where things get a little dicey. That's where relativity comes in. And there's a lot to say about that. But the motto is simply time is like space. And before you had relativity, you didn't really realize that because time was this universal thing that everyone experienced in the same way. In space, you know, different people can walk through space in different ways. And relativity says, well, different people can walk through time in different ways, and they will experience different amounts of time. If two people start at the same point in space, and one goes in a straight line to some other point, and the other person also goes to that same point, but goes on a weird, twisted, curvy path, of course, they start at the same point, end at the same point, but they've traveled different distances, right? This surprises nobody. This is not considered weird. The amount of distance you personally travel is not some universal feature of the world. All Einstein is saying is that time is also like that. If you and your friend start at the same moment of time, your friend just sits still, but you zoom out in a rocket ship near the speed of light and then come back, the amount of time that has elapsed for you is analogous to the amount of distance you would travel by walking in some curvy path. The difference is, because it's not exactly like space, but the difference is that in space, the shortest distance path is a straight line. In space-time, it's the longest time path that is a straight line. So your friend who stays behind and just sort of doesn't do anything, that's moving in a straight line through time, right? They will always experience more time than you do when you zip out and come back. And there's a whole bunch of formulas that tell you exactly how much you will experience. 
Yeah, and we don't know like why that occurs, right? In a philosophical context, it just seems to be something true in the fabric of the universe. Yeah, you know, why the, the why questions always bottom out somewhere, and relativity seems to be the way our universe works. And so what's going on there is like, say I've got a quartz watch and you've got a quartz watch and I'm zipping around at the speed of light. It's the, the, the cycles of the quartz oscillator, the thing that I'm using to measure time, are different because they're moving rapidly through space. I know that everyone says it that way, including some brilliant people who know relativity very well. But I don't like to say it that way because a, a way of saying it that is more faithful to the spirit of relativity is when your two watches are not right next to each other you shouldn't be comparing them. There's no such thing as how fast the watch is ticking when it's light years away from when it is right now. There's no unique way to do that comparison. To do that comparison, you would have to look at the watch, but it's light years away. It's going to take light years for the signals to get back and forth to you. You can't see how quickly the watch is ticking now. In relativity, that doesn't even really make sense. So what I prefer to say is simply that the time elapsed on your watch is a way of measuring the duration of time you experienced along your path. And of course, that will be different for different people moving in different places in space-time. When you when you walk on a straight line versus walking on a curvy path, you experience different amounts of distance, but no one is tempted to say, I had a different number of meters per meter that I was traveling. That's That's just not a useful kind of concept. So we're putting time on a similar kind of footing to space, but there are some things about time that are different, which you mentioned before. There's this concept with time of time's arrow. We only experience time in one direction. Obviously, in space, we can usually travel around wherever we like. So how do we reconcile that? Yeah, I mean, this is the crucially important fact. This is why time seems so different to us than space. One of the reasons, the main reason, is that time does have a direction. We can remember the past and taken photographs of the past. We can have records of it and fossils. We have no fossils or photographs or memories from the future. That's why we experience ourselves to be flowing from the past to the future in a way that there's just no analog for space. Now, to, to say that, there is a little bit of an analog, namely here on Earth, we all agree the difference between up and down, right? I mean, you and I don't agree because you're in Australia, but locally, nearby, we all agree that if I drop something, it will fall down. But we know that that's not because of the fundamental laws of physics, right? We know that it's just our environment that is doing that. It's just because we're near the Earth and the Earth is pulling on the thing that is being dropped, Okay. Turns out that time is the same way. Despite everything that we experience in our everyday lives, this arrow of time is not fundamental. It is not built into the laws of physics. It is a feature of the universe in which we happen to live, starting with the Big Bang 14 billion years ago, in exactly the same way that our notion of up and down is relevant, is related to the fact that the Earth is beneath our feet. Well, let's just get to it then. Time travel. Is it possible? Obviously, we're traveling forwards in time. That's a kind of time travel. But what if we wanted to do something else? So forwards in time is a kind of tra time travel. It's an important one. You know, it's very, very relevant to our everyday lives. And when Einstein proposed theory of relativity, remember, he did it in two stages, right? He had special relativity in 1905, which was this unification of space and time into space time. And then there's general relativity in 1915, so 10 years later, where he says that space time can be warped. It can have a geometry, and we experience that geometry as gravity. So the answer to your question about time travel depends on 
your laws of physics, right? If it were Isaac Newton who had been correct, no, there's no kind of time travel other than we all march forward into the future at one second per second. In special relativity, Einstein's theory in 1905, again, you can only go into the future. But now, if you, as we've been saying, if you zoom out quickly and then come back, you may experience more or less amounts of time. And therefore, in some sense, you can get to the future faster from your own point of view, right? If I zip out near the speed of light and I zip back, it may take me a year and a thousand years have passed here on Earth. So that's a kind of time travel that is absolutely 100% possible according to the known laws of physics. Now, general relativity comes along where space and time are warped, and there we don't honestly know the answer. There have been proposals from people like Kip Thorne and Richard Gott that you can imagine warping curved space-time so much that you can zip out, and as far as you're concerned, you're going forward in time one second per second, but you come back before you left, not because you're doing the right thing, but because the space-time through which you're moving has been so dramatically curved. Is that actually possible in nature? The answer is we honestly don't know. We're, we have good reason to think it's not, but we're not sure, and it's very, very interesting, so we should still think about it. That is fascinating. So what kind of things do you think we need to understand better to understand whether or not that is possible? How far away are we from from really zeroing in on that answer? Well, you know, that's a, it's a great question because it's even hard to pinpoint what it is that we would need to know. We have, as I said, Einstein's general theory of relativity, his, his masterpiece. That's what really made him the celebrity scientist, got him on the cover of Time magazine as the most important person of the century. But we also know it's not right. At the end of the day, it's not complete. It's very, very right in the regime where it's supposed to work. But there are regimes where it's not even supposed to work, regimes where energies become super big. You get black holes and singularities and quantum mechanics becomes important. And there's probably a need for a better theory than general relativity to give us the final answer. And what seems to be the case, and Stephen Hawking and others have argued in favor of this, what seems to be the case is that when you try to build a time machine, when you start in a universe that doesn't have a time machine already in it and try to like manipulate matter and energy so as to warp space-time so much that you make a time machine, what really happens is everything collapses into a black hole. That seems to be the rough indication, and people have been trying to wriggle out of that conclusion for a long time. But what we would need is whatever is the correct theory of gravity in these circumstances where presumably quantum mechanics is important and singularities get in the way and all these things that we don't yet understand. So uh, I remember many years ago uh, in, in my youth, uh, some people were very concerned that the Large Hadron Collider was going to destroy the Earth by creating a black hole and, uh, and ruin everything. Physicists at the time were saying, oh, don't be silly. There's no way that that can possibly happen. But what you're saying is if we tried to build a time machine... <laughs> <laughs> that might actually occur. Well, what I'm saying is it would collapse into a black hole. There's lots of things, hypothetically, that would collapse into a black hole. Stars do it all the time. Anytime you get enough energy in a sufficiently small space, things collapse into a black hole. If the black hole is tiny enough, then who cares? You wouldn't even notice it. But the the things that you would need to do to make that black hole are so enormously beyond human technological capacity right now that it's not something high on my list of things to worry about. So, there you have it. Time is a weird and wonderful thing, but we probably aren't going to destroy the universe trying to travel through it. I was getting ready to wrap the interview here, when Sean started to make another point, sitting at the interface of philosophy and physics, which, again, is exactly the kind of thing I'm more than willing to indulge. 
we started to talk about entropy, which is just a physicist-y way of measuring how disordered or chaotic a system is. We know that it seems to be one of the fundamental laws of our universe that the total entropy, the total amount of chaos in the universe, if you like, must always be increasing. And Sean tied this concept to time and the evolution of life itself. It's just the one thing that I love to emphasize when it comes to the arrow of time, how universal it is. Um, we think that ultimately the arrow of time is dependent on entropy increasing, entropy being the physicist's way of measuring the disorderliness of, of the universe. And the entropy is increasing throughout the universe and for the same direction for everybody. So when we meet aliens, they'll have a different alphabet. They'll have different ideas about biology and so forth, but they will still remember the past and predict the future just like we do. And sometimes I think people think of the existence of biological organisms as somehow a repudiation of increasing entropy, right? Of somehow we're bravely resisting the tendency of the universe to evolve toward increasing disorder. Sadly, that's – or happily, I guess, that's just not right. It is almost exactly the opposite of that. You and I can only exist – because entropy is increasing. We rely on the arrow of time. We, Our existence vastly accelerates the rate at which entropy is increasing in the universe. I mean, not compared to like a star or something like that. They're very big, but entropy is increasing faster because we're here than it would if we were not. So how does the coalescing of various atoms into these seemingly quite ordered structures called cells represent an increase in entropy? Uh, well, it doesn't by itself, but you've left things out. That's the important thing. We're part of a bigger system. You should be asking yourself, why did these atoms coalesce into cells in the first place? And one of the leading ideas there is that there was the potential for increasing entropy in the early atmosphere and ocean of the Earth. There's a lot of sort of untapped chaos that we could imagine creating but it was too complicated. You couldn't just light a match and make it happen. You needed a complex system of chemical reactions to increase the entropy in the right way. And once you hit on that complex system of chemical reactions, it sort of took off and became the proto-living organism. So you've got to take a longer-term view of uh, what it means to be a cell in terms of the total entropy of the entire universe uh, to understand why it occurs. That is always a good idea anyway, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. I don't know about you, but I quite like the idea of human life evolving out of the universe's need to generate more chaos. We're sort of like a tool the laws of physics created to increase how messy things are. Sounds about right to me. And that's it for this month's episode of Naked Astronomy. I hope you enjoyed yourself and learned something. Big thanks to Professor Sean Carroll, and if you'd like to hear more from him, you can check out his new book. I do have a new book on relativity and uh, space-time and things like that. It's called The Biggest Ideas in the Universe, Space, Time, and Motion. And I talk about Newtonian physics, classical physics, up through relativity. What is space? What is time? What is curved space-time? What are black holes? And the gimmick in the book is that I put all the equations in. So it's meant for a broad audience. You're not supposed to have any prerequisites at all. But I teach you calculus. I teach you what the equations mean. And so at the end, you've seen Einstein's equation. You've seen the Schwarzschild solution. And you know what that stuff, what those crazy symbols represent, just like a regular physicist would. If that sounds interesting to you, please go check it out. Until next time, if you'd like to get in touch to give us feedback or request a topic, you can get me at benm at nakedscientists.com, at Dr. B.T. McAllister on Twitter, or you can travel back in time to leave me a note before I begin editing this episode. 
Thanks again for listening. I'm Ben McAllister. This has been Naked Astronomy, and keep watching the skies. 